Pray with me again. God of all glory and grace, we are gathered because we worship you, not just now, but with our whole lives. And now by your Holy Spirit, may you take the truth of your word and teach us to adore your name above all else. Tune our hearts to sing your praise and to walk in obedience. God, give us comfort and strength, even as you have promised to do through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Will the gospel of Jesus Christ advance without difficulty? Will the gospel advance without difficulty? No, most assuredly not. In fact, we can expect uncertainties and difficulties. We can expect hindrances and setbacks. We can expect delays and roadblocks. And on top of that, we can also expect direct and indirect opposition and persecution. That's what we see in the next leg of the second missionary journey in Acts. In fact, that, that's what we see regularly in God's word. It's interesting that there is such a, false, a falsehood being taught by some who call themselves Christians, some who even call themselves evangelicals, who want to claim that if you simply ignore the hard stuff, it'll go away. Or we can just pretend that everything is rosy. Well, then what are we doing? We're just faking. When we read God's word, we see people experiencing the hardship of following Jesus. And we, we see God's faithfulness to see them through. That's what we need. But the truth is, all we have to do is open God's word and let it speak. And we will hear that truth for our sake. And Acts 16 is an example of this. Now, just to remind you the immediate context, this missionary team has just received instruction from the Holy Spirit through a dream vision to Paul to head for Macedonia for gospel proclamation there. So now, Paul and Silas, along with Timothy and Luke, a team of at least these four, they obediently depart to begin the first missionary work in Macedonia. And this is really a transfer all the way from the continent of Asia to the continent of Europe. The first missions work in Europe. Read with me in Acts chapter 16, verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And, as the Sab and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. 
who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this kept and this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed or disturbed, frustrated, turned and said to the, to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that her hope, their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Here's where we're going today from the example of these missionaries in Philippi. With the reality of, of uncertainties and setbacks, with new people and new places, with facing very real spiritual opposition and personal persecution. We trust in God's sovereignty and saving power to open hearts to receive the gospel. We trust in his sovereignty and saving power to deliver us from the forces of evil we trust in his saving power and his sovereignty to protect us from harm or to sustain us through suffering and injustice. So in new places with new people, we trust in God's sovereignty and in his saving power to open hearts to receive the gospel. That's what we see in verses 11 to 15. So in the context of how I started this, what, what begins as smooth sailing is soon met with setbacks in Philippi. But here Lydia receives the gospel and becomes not only hostess to the missionaries, but will be an important hostess and patron of the church in this city. We'll see that in verse 40. The voyage begins from Troas and they set sail across the Aegean Sea and the voyage is literally smooth. I have a map for you to show you again this second missionary journey. Now you're on the, the west side of it, which for you is the uh, left. You see all the way on the left that region of Macedonia. So they're moving from that, that area of uh, Asia over to uh, Macedonia. And that's where we see them make a quick stop at an island called Samothrace. And the reason I tell you this is a smooth sailing is that if they had headwinds, which is often the case when they're journeying back the other direction, this journey may take as many as four or five days, but it only takes them two. They make it to the island in the first day and they stop overnight in Samothrace because it was dangerous to travel, to sail at night. And so they stop there. The next day they make it all the way to Neapolis, which is the port city of Philippi. They don't stay there either, but they journey eight to 10 miles immediately to Philippi the first city where they settle in to proclaim God's good news through Jesus Christ. We remain in this city 
for some days, verse 12 says. Philippi was a leading city of that district of Macedonia, which was divided into four districts. Thessalonica was the actual capital city of Macedonia, to which they will, these guys, this team will travel soon enough. But what's significant to the context of what takes place here, Philippi was, the text tells us, a Roman colony, which it had been since 31 BC. Remember this period of, of the Roman rule and, and even the, the Pax Romana? They have, they have defeated, they have conquered the other nations. They now, they rule a great section of the known world. And there's relative peace because most of these places are... Um, they're allowed to sort of rule their own regions, but under the authority of the Roman Empire. But a Roman colony, which Philippi was, this city is in fact uh, free. It's not even under the authority of, um, of the provincial leadership or government. So it's, it has this Roman flavor and influence, but it's a free city. It's self-governing and independent we'll see that come into play with the, the two magistrates who uh, interact and have complete authority in this city. Just as a healthy reminder that, that this historical theology deals with real people and real places and real events in a forthright and accurate manner. Here's another map for you. This is a, an approximate map of some of the things that have already been uncovered in uh, archaeological excavation in Philippi. And some of these things date back to the time of Paul. So um, uh, what one, one of the things that we know is that archaeological remains from Paul's day testify to the presence of a theater, a large forum beneath the, the later 2nd century AD forum. So they've uncovered another one on top of that. This is the one underlying it. There were shops there were two city gates, which you can see in this map. And then according to calculations by Eckhart Schnabel, one biblical scholar, he says Paul's mission in Philippi probably took place from August to October in AD 49. If he's correct, that would be 1,974 years ago in October. The things in the Bible are not moral fables. They are historical events that are continually confirmed as accurate by other literature and by other archaeological finds. And it should be a comfort and a reminder to us that these are real people, real places, real events who have been rescued by the gospel of Jesus Christ, dealing with similar things that you deal with. dealing with some things that others suffer across the globe for the sake of Jesus. Now, the first setback in Philippi is, is a more minor one. Where do we begin gospel proclamation? Remember how much we've talked about they made it their practice to go to the synagogues first. Well, it, it seems that even though their normal practice is to start with Jews and Jewish proselytes, those who fear God and regularly uh, gather in the synagogue, there does not appear to be an active synagogue in Philippi. A minimum of 10 Jewish men was necessary to constitute a regular synagogue. And so there were not 10 
faithful households to, uh, or Jewish households to have a synagogue. There may not have been even this size of a practicing Jewish contingent. But in places where there was no, synag- no formal synagogue, Paul and company evidently knew that there, was, there would be a place of prayer for anyone who is a Jew or a God-fearer. And it was normally beside water, outside the gate, they go to the riverside. Probably on the, the previous image that you saw, probably to the, on the river to the west side of town. Now, it's important that it's by water for them because ritual washing of hands before, before prayer seems to have been standard in diaspora Judaism. And excavations, again, show the importance of water to synagogues. So for our guys, on the Sabbath day, they find a group of women who are faithful to gather and pray. Notice again that the men are conspicuously absent, but they do find some faithful women. One of these women, Lydia by name, becomes the first new believer in Philippi. We hear nothing of a husband, but Lydia appears to be well off and successful running her own business of selling purple goods. Purple was a more rare dye extracted by harder means, and therefore purple goods were more high-end and costly. It seems pretty clear that Lydia is not only a God-fearer, but that she's well-off. The place that she comes from was known for it. Now, if you try to remember, I don't have the map again for you, but in the map, she's from the place called Thyatira, which is back in that section of of Asia. And there, that place was actually known for uh, these purple goods, the export of these purple goods. And thus, her name to those in Philippi may come from this connection that, that the region that she's from, Thyatira, the region is called Lydia. So maybe they're, she's known as the woman of Lydia, and that becomes her name. Lydia is also called a worshiper of God which would likely mean she is a God-fearer from among the Gentiles and not a Jew. The other ladies present may have been the same. They may not have been Jews. But what should catch our attention most, I'm telling you all these things, reminding you about the truth of the context and the historical accuracy of a narrative like this from Luke, but what should really grab our attention most in this section of the text is the way her conversion is described. The Lord opened her heart. Paul faithfully and obediently preached the gospel, but it was the Lord who gave Lydia the ability to hear with the ears of faith. John Stott observes that although the message was was Paul's, he's the one who, who proclaimed the saving initiative was God's. Paul preaching wasn't effective in itself, The Lord worked through it. And the Lord's work was not in itself direct. He chose to work through Paul's preaching. It is always the same. You may think to yourself um, that there's accusation for those of us who believe in God's sovereignty and salvation. That is God who works. You may have heard some silly accusation before that if we believe that, then we don't think it's necessary to witness. No, God uses secondary means. He is the primary cause, but he has chosen to use secondary means. 
And so we obediently obey and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only is that true, but as you think about what the Lord did for Lydia, that he opened her heart to receive the gospel, you realize that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God did that for you. That's why it's grace. So why can we courageously approach new people with the gospel? Why can we confidently proclaim Jesus in new places? Because we trust in God's sovereignty and saving power to open hearts to receive the gospel. Lydia demonstrates the validity of her faith and and that of her household through baptism. Her household likely would have included servants as well as any family members in her care. Lydia also desired to open her home to host these men, and she prevailed upon them. She must have insisted, and she convinced them. We'll see later, too, and it is significant because her home becomes the meeting place for the new church in Philippi. So although things began in Philippi with this gospel success, in the next two sections, which we're covering today, We observe the missionaries encountering opposition in the form of demonic spiritual activity and in human greed and self-interest, leading to them suffering physical harm and injustice. Even though that's the case, in verses 16 to 18, we see that we ought to trust, as Paul and Silas do, in God's sovereignty and saving power to deliver from the forces of evil. At a subsequent opportunity, the next time they have a chance to go out to the place of prayer by the the water's edge, what begins to take place in verses 16 to 18 is that a demon-possessed girl continues harassing the missionaries. Even though what she says about them is accurate, it actually sounds pretty good. These men are servants of the Most High God, using a Hebrew term for the Most High God. Who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Paul would not want the gospel, though, the gospel of Jesus that they proclaim to be associated with this spirit of divination that is not from God. The spirit of divination is literally in the text a spirit of a, a pythoness. Daryl Bach explains that Python is a reference to the soothsaying divinity originally conceived of as a snake or a dragon that inhabited Delphi, which was originally known as Pythia. So the priestesses at Delphi were called Pythiae, Pythonesses. This spirit was said to direct women by overpowering them and allowing them to foretell the future, soothsaying, as here. They are up against a powerful demon, or demonic possession. In fact, we've, we, we see this as, as true other places in the Bible. This is a reminder to us that the false things of this present age that we deal with are often, especially when it leads to, to, to false movements and false religions, where do you think their backing comes from? 
Where do you think their power comes from? What is this relationship of the false god Apollo? It's to the devil. Now, we're to understand that this powerful evil spirit within her was saying things to people beyond normal human knowledge, predicting the future. Now, she was a slave, so her owners were exploiting this demon possession for financial gain. Not really concerned about the girl. As the evil spirit in her keeps repeating the activity of, of following the missionaries and crying out about who they are, Paul becomes increasingly disturbed and troubled by this. When he's had enough, he commands the spirit in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And that's precisely what happens right away, that very hour. But why do we not need to live in constant fear of the deceptive forces of evil? Because we trust in God's sovereignty and saving power. And we trust in him to help us distinguish between what is from him and what is not. This scenario only reinforces our understanding of the underhanded and deceptive schemes that the devil uses. What the demon says is true, but then these believers would become associated with the occult. And Paul doesn't want that. But because of the, de the devil's deceptive scheming, we must be discerning which was our theme from last week. So especially as it concerns spiritual deception, we can readily understand uh, a much-quoted statement from Charles Spurgeon on discernment. He said this, Discernment is not a matter of simply telling the difference between right and wrong. Rather, it is telling the difference between right and almost right. Discernment is the difference is telling the difference between what is right and almost right. Notice that from the examples we have in Scripture, Satan mingles truth with falsehood to lead astray. Now, as we continue, this subtle spiritual opposition now becomes direct confrontation and persecution from people. In verses 19, and 23, 19 to 23, we're reminded to trust in God's sovereignty and saving power to protect us from harm or to sustain us through suffering and injustice. Although the missionaries have, have done this slave girl a kindness by freeing her from demonic oppression... Her owners don't see it that way. Their concern is not for the girl, but for their loss of income, in verse 19. So they seize Paul and Silas, and they drag them to the agora, the marketplace, the, the center of the town. There they can bring their accusation before the rulers, the authorities in the city. We learn in verse 20 that these leaders are the magistrates who are two appointed officials that are standard for a Roman colony. These two leaders work together. Paul and Silas, before these two magistrates, are falsely accused of inciting public upheaval. And then secondly, of teaching people customs that are not lawful for Romans to accept or practice. 
Obviously, they didn't intend public disturbance, but these men are, are calling it that because they're angry about their lost income. And then Paul also would not have considered himself to be teaching some weird, unsanctioned religion. He, was, he believed himself to be teaching that Jesus is the true fulfillment of Jewish faith, which was a known and accepted religion in the Roman Empire. What makes this even more obvious is that the Most High God, as we said, referenced by the demon-possessed girl, was known to be the God of the Hebrews. So the point is that they are falsely accused. Apparently, Timothy and Luke, remember? Timothy and Luke are along with them. Almost forgot about those guys. Apparently, they don't suffer this treatment either because they're not leading voices or because they're not predominantly Jewish. Did you notice that the accusation against these men is that these Jews are doing such and such? As Aaron pointed out earlier, What have we seen to be the case for the Jews for centuries and centuries, for two millennia? Are any people more hated for simply being who they are? And in case you should think that such difficulty only applies to Jews. What has come to be the case in all of Western society, even though the external culture teaches that the most important value is to... Uh, is tolerance. The highest value is independence, or the highest value with dealing with groups of people is, is tolerance, even religious tolerance, and that applies to everybody except those people who follow Jesus. We might as well know that it's difficult for people to be the chosen people of God as Jews, and it's difficult to be the chosen people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Which is the only way in the present age that anyone, including Jews, can be the people of God. But as the crowd gets drawn into the frenzy, the magistrates decide to disrobe Paul and Silas, and they have them beaten with rods. The, the magistrates had men with them called lictors who would have carried these rods in bundles to do their bidding and sort of function as like intimidators for the people. So we have these magistrates who sit at a place like a bema seat, like there's this judgment podium, and they would sit there and they would hear the cases, and they have these lictors literally ready there to inflict physical punishment with rods. Although corporal punishment was accepted as a means of warning and deterring citizens, and even as a means to secure evidence, they could, they could beat people to get information out of them. This was still a miscarriage of justice because there was clearly no opportunity whatsoever for a real hearing of witnesses, especially not on behalf of the missionaries. 
Even they believed that the proper way to handle any trial of any kind was to hear witnesses from both sides. But that's not what happens. The crowd gets whipped into a frenzy, and Paul and Silas are soundly beaten and put in prison. Does that remind you of anything? Think back to who these men look like when they deal with this. Who suffered unjustly at the hands of godless men? Who was mistreated and beaten and died on a cross unjustly? But we know that Christ took our sin upon himself to atone for sin and to rise again and conquer sin and death. And that's why Paul and Silas would willingly travel to new places and willingly deal with this kind of treatment. Paul will tell the, the Corinthians in one of his letters to them that this, among many other things, that this type of beating happened to him uh, three times. So we only know of one for sure in Philippi. He says it happened multiple times. They suffer physical harm and injustice and public shame for proclaiming the gospel, for freeing a slave girl from satanic, from satanic bondage. And then they're imprisoned, not knowing what the outcome will be. Of course, what happens next serves to demonstrate again that God has saving power not only over our physical situations, but saving power over the hearts of men. Next time we'll be able to look more closely at what happened with the Philippian jailer. Why don't we have to fear injustice against, against us or even physical harm from persecutors? Now, of course, we fear it in the sense of nobody's looking forward to it, but we don't fear it ultimately because nothing can happen to us that God has not ordained. Hear me again. Do you believe that that is true? Nothing can happen to us that God has not ordained. And God has power to deliver us, and God has power to sustain us in suffering. And we know that God is not mocked, and that in the end, no injustice will go unanswered before him. God will be vindicated. And we know that this life is not all that there is. That they can hurt us, and they can even kill this body, but we are now and will be forevermore in Christ. So as we wrap this up for this morning, let's be reminded that the author of this theological history clearly believes that, that he and we ought to follow the apostolic example here of trusting in God's sovereignty and saving power. It's God who opens hearts to receive the gospel. So can you have courage to speak the truth in love concerning the gospel to people you don't really know? Or... 
what perhaps takes even more courage to proclaim the gospel to people that do know you. And you're going to see again? Yes. Because God opens hearts to receive the gospel. Even opposition, whether human or spiritual, opposition is no match for our God. We trust that he can deliver us, and we trust that he knows and does only what is best, even if we should suffer injustice and physical harm. That's what it means to, to believe in the sovereignty of a good God, in the providential care of a good God. He always does what is best, even when we suffer. Because God has saved us and made us his own, we trust him completely. And it is God who has ultimate power and authority over all the forces of evil. There is real evil in this world, bound up in the hearts of men, and real satanic, demonic forces behind what, much of what is deliberately deceptive evil to lead people further away from God. But we don't have to fear that because Christ has already proven that God is victorious over evil. By his sacrificial death and resurrection power, Jesus has already defeated the stronghold of sin. He has already defeated the schemes of Satan and has already defeated death itself. So in Christ, God can give you victory over the power of sin to lead you to death. Which means that then as we live as Christians, God can and does, as we submit to the Spirit, He gives us victory over sin. Not perfectly, but progressively becoming more like Christ. He has already defeated the schemes of Satan. And we remember too that these evils are not permanent. And they do not have the final say. God has already spoken the final word through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So our comfort and confidence is in him. We are his, him we proclaim. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our confidence is in you. You have proven that through Jesus Christ, you are sufficient for these things. Death could not hold him. Satan could not defeat him. He has atoned for sin once and for all, for all who put their trust in Jesus Christ, for all who belong to him. Thank you, God, for that comfort. Thank you for that courage. We do not want to be people who pretend that we don't suffer. We do not want to be people who pretend that Satan isn't out to thwart your plan and, and draw people away from you. We know that these things are true. 
and yet they are no match for you, God. And so we trust in you. Teach us to trust you more. Help us to abide in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Do you want something that is better than your burden of being self-centered? Do you seek the answer to the consequences of your sin? Do you want to know something or someone who, has, who is better and has purpose and meaning even for the suffering that you experience in this life? Then come to Jesus. God wants to offer you, a, God offers you a relationship with himself through faith in Jesus Christ. So repent and believe the gospel. Christians, I encourage you, even as we just finished singing, there is no rock like our God. Stand firmly on the rock of salvation in Jesus Christ. Cling to it because there is no other. Also go out in comfort and courage. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this reminder today that we do not trust in ourselves, nor do we trust in the devices of men. As the scripture says, some, entrust, some trust in chariots and some in horses, some trust in the legs of, of men, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Father, help us to depend on you. Sustain us, we pray, as you promise that your people will persevere until the end. Give us hope and comfort and courage. In Christ's name we pray, amen.